Welcome to Spiritual Gold, the teaching ministry of Dr. Richard L. Strauss. I'm Dr. Mark Strauss, and these podcasts represent the faithful exposition of God's Word by my father through his 21-year ministry at Emmanuel Faith Community Church. Our prayer is that through these messages, you would be encouraged and equipped in your walk with the Lord. Just a couple weeks ago, I heard somebody use that trite old saying that we've used or heard so many times. There's only two things you have to do in life. One of them is pay taxes and the other is to die. Well, it seems as though some people have found some ways to get out of paying taxes. So that saying is not really entirely true. But the second part of it is, you've got to die because that's what the word of God teaches and we see it all around us. We're born to die from the moment we give we take our first breath, we are dying creatures. The writer to the Hebrews said, it is appointed unto man once to die. We're studying Ephesians chapter 2 tonight, verses 1 to 10. And this passage of scripture is about death. But the major point isn't that we have to die, the major point is that we're already dead. Millions of people Literally billions of people now living are already dead. When I was a student at Wheaton College, I took a course in personal evangelism from Dr. Eugene Harrison. Dr. Harrison was a man who had been in the pastorate, been on the mission field, then been in the pastorate, and then came to Wheaton College to spend the last days of his ministry teaching students courses like personal evangelism. And in, in the course of that study, somewhere along the line, I don't even remember what we were talking about or why we were talking about it, Dr. Harrison told us a story that occurred to him while he was in the pastorate some years before coming to Wheaton College. In the little town where he was pastoring, a visiting speaker came for a one-night stand. His name was Judge Rutherford. I don't know whether that name rings a bell to you, but Judge Rutherford was one of the early leaders in the Jehovah's Witness movement. And Judge Rutherford's uh, text or subject for that night is that millions now living will never die. Now, we believe that millions now living may never die because we believe that Christ coming for the church could be at any moment. But to say millions now living will never die was a little bit of exaggeration of Scripture. And, of course, the Jehovah's Witness had plastered the town with Judge Rutherford's subject for that night. And many people were planning to go Dr. Harrison was not to be undone. He prepared a message of his own, printed up thousands of flyers, took them up in an airplane, and dropped them all over the city. That was before the days where pollution wouldn't allow that sort of thing. It was done frequently. In fact, it's been done in Escondido by Emmanuel Faith Community Church, if I'm not mistaken. Wasn't that in our 40th anniversary celebration? Wasn't Ed Sam's responsible for that? Yeah, I remember that. <clears throat> But the subject for Dr. Harrison's message the same night that Judge Rutherford was speaking is simply, millions now living are already dead. And his text was Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. The, the second chapter of the book of Ephesians is about God's plan and program for this world. We're, we're about to learn in this passage of Scripture what God is about and what he's doing in this world. But in the first 10 verses, we learn who he uses to do it. 
And of all people, God chooses dead men. So he picks to do his work and to carry on his program. He removes them from the graveyard of sin and transforms them into the throne room of glory. He picks dead men. These ten verses can be divided, I think, in three different ideas. In the first three verses, we learn about our past plight. These people whom God is going to use to carry out his program, the members of God's program, their past plight is described in verses 1 to 3. Our present position is described in verses 4 to 6. And our prospective purpose is described in verses 7 to 10. Let's go through it. It says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. You notice the words, hath he made alive, are in italics. They really aren't in the original text of Scripture. They are borrowed from verse 5. When we were dead in sins, he hath made us alive together with Christ. They really are there in verse 5. But verse 1 merely tells us what we were. We were dead. Now, what is death? We studied that on Sunday morning just a few weeks ago in our study of sin. We learned that death is not cessation of existence. It is not annihilation. It is not destruction. Death in the Bible is separation. Separation from our intended purpose and use. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. The body was made to house the soul, to be the vehicle through which our soul operates. But in physical death, the soul departs from the body and the body is deprived of its intended purpose, you see. That's physical death. Spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. God made us to enjoy Him forever, to fellowship with Him and communion with Him. But if we die in our sins then we are forever separated from him and are not able to fulfill the purpose for which God made us. And just as a physically dead person does not respond to physical stimuli, so a spiritually dead person does not respond to spiritual stimuli. He does not understand the things of God. They're just absolutely incomprehensible to him because he is spiritually dead. And that's the kind of people Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2.1. They are spiritually dead. They're separated from the life of God. Over in chapter 4 of Ephesians, in verse 18, the Apostle Paul uses that very terminology. He says we are alienated from the life of God. Separated from God's life. All we have is physical life. Not spiritual life. Consequently, we're separated from God. And that comes about because of sin. For as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, because all sinned. Romans 5.12 The life of God is not in us. And so the whole world God views as a spiritual graveyard. It's inhabited by billions, over four billion people, who are walking around, who are physically alive, but the majority of whom are spiritually dead. They are living dead men. And this is the material God seeks to use to carry out his program in this life, in this world. These living dead men are described for us in the verses that follow, verses 2 and 3. Four characteristics are given to us. It says, In which in times past you walked according to the course of this world, our manner of life before we came to know Christ as dead men, living dead men, was according to the, the norm, the standard, the pattern for living for the unbeliever is according to the course of this world. 
It's a very interesting description in the Greek text. It actually uses the two words that are normally translated word or world or age. It says, according to the age of this world. And I would imagine the idea is correctly uh, communicated to us in the King James Version by using the word course. But the word age is a time word. It means a period of time. This world is not always in existence and it will not exist forever. It's in existence for a particular time period. And while it's in existence, there's certain things that characterize it. And we as living dead men live according to that spirit of this world, the course of this age during its period of existence. We think we do what we want to do. We think we live as we want to live. But really, our lives are patterned after the spirit of the age. We see what's going on around us. We see the trend of our times. We see how other people are thinking. And we fall into line like sheep behind a shepherd. And we do what others are doing. And we pattern our lives after what other people do. We walk according to the course of this world. That's the first characteristic of living dead men. They live according to the world around them. According to the spirit of our times and of our world and our age. The second is... We walk according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That's the same person. The prince of the power of the air and the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience both refer to Satan. He's the ruler of this world. And the standard of the unbeliever's life is patterned after Satan's standard. He sets the pace. He sets the standard. And unbelieving men, living dead men, they just fall in line. They accept Satan's philosophy. They're brainwashed by Satan's way of thinking and his way of doing things. They think they're free. They think they're doing what they want to do and living as they want to live. But really, they're just falling in the line and following their father, who Jesus said is Satan. He's the father of the unbeliever. And they walk according to the prince of this world, the power who now works in the sons of disobedience. Notice, please, and we'll call this the third description, unbelievers, living dead men, are sons of disobedience. Since their father was the first to disobey God and exalt himself above God or try to, they fall right in the line and they do what he did and they disobey God. They are sons of God. Satan is their father and he is the father of disobedience and consequently they too become the sons of disobedience. They don't know how to obey God. They may think they're obeying God. They may try to obey God, but they're really obeying what they think God says because Satan has them blinded to what God wants them to know. They are sons of disobedience. The fourth characteristic is in verse 3, among whom also we had our manner of life in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, the natural mind. We walk for one, we live for one purpose. Our everyday manner of life, our walk, uh, was in order to fulfill our own lusts, our own desires, our own pleasures, to do what we wanted to do, to bring satisfaction to ourselves. That's why we live. Our lives were designed to fill the, fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And the flesh doesn't simply mean our body and our skin and our bones. The Apostle Paul normally uses that word flesh to describe our sinful nature, the nature which, with, with which we were born. And it dictates how we're going to live and what we're going to do. It's interesting that in these three verses, we have the three enemies of the believer. They're right there for us. The world in verse 2. We had our 
walk according to the course of this world. The devil, verse 2, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, and the flesh, among whom also we had our manner of life in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the natural mind. The world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what we live uh, that's the standard by which we live, and they are the, the major forces that oppose our walk with God and our desire to know God. It's the enemy of the, of the believer. Notice also the result of this in verse 3, and we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We are destined to wrath. Because we walk according to the course of the age and the, and the standard of the prince of the power of the air and the flesh with which we were born, because of all that, we are by nature destined for wrath. We deserve wrath. That's what it means to be children of wrath, to deserve wrath. And this is by nature. We are born destined to wrath, Paul says. And this is the material God's going to use to accomplish his purposes. We are destined to wrath not merely because we commit acts of sin, but because we are sinners by nature. That's what Paul's teaching us here. We are sinners by nature, and therefore we are destined to wrath by nature. And wrath, of course, is a description of eternal punishment, eternal separation from God. We experience that because we're sinners. We have a sinful nature. And we sin because we're sinners. That's our nature. We have a dog at home. He's a very nice dog. We like him. He's our friend, Levi. He, he's, a, he's a kind dog. He doesn't bite anybody. He's, he's, he loves people. He's a people lover. You know, sometimes we get to thinking that, we almost get to think that Levi's a person. He's just so much a part of the family, and he's so much like us in so many ways that we begin to accept him as part of the family. He loves people. He loves children. Gets along with children. He lets children abuse him without fighting back. It's amazing what some of the staff children have done to Levi when they've visited our house. And Levi doesn't bite them or he just lays there and takes it. When he gets enough of it, he just gets up and walks away. You know, it's amazing. He's such a nice dog. He's kind, too, and generous. He doesn't have a mean bone in his body. But, you know, that dog, even though we kind of accept him as part of the he does things that the rest of the family doesn't do. He barks at other dogs. Now, none of the rest of our family does that. I wish Levi wouldn't do that. That bothers me, you know, especially at 2 o'clock in the morning. It really bothers me that he does that. He does other things. You know, he smells other dogs. Nobody else in the family does that. <laughs> and he does some other things I won't mention at this point. <laughs> he does those things because he's a dog. He has a dog's nature. And I can't expect anything more out of him, though sometimes we just sort of accept him as part of the family. He's not one of the family. He doesn't have the nature of a human being created by God in his image. He's a dog. He has a dog's nature. And that's why he acts like a dog. Even though he does some nice things that people do, he also does some dog things. And there's no way I'm going to change that. I'd like to try, but I just can't change it. Now, cats have other habits, and they act like cats because they have a cat nature. And we act like sinners, dear folks, because we have a sinful nature. We're born with it. We are by nature the children of wrath, Paul says, even as others. And that's the material God's got to work with. 
They're the people through whom he's going to carry on his program. Our past plight. Verse 4 begins, But God. But God, who is rich in mercy for the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. After that picture of hopelessness and despair, after that dismal, abysmal picture in verses 1 to 3, we have those glorious words, but God. Words of light and cheer and hope and expectancy and illumination. They bring light to a dark situation. But God who is rich in mercy. Mercy is that attribute of God by which he feels compassion for sinners in their need. So that he reaches out to alleviate their desperate, miserable situation. And particularly holds back the punishment that they deserve. He's rich in mercy. There's no end to the richness of God's mercy. But God who is rich in mercy and for the great love with which he loved us. There's no way to describe God's love. In fact, over in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul makes it pretty well known that it's more than we can comprehend. He prays that we may to some degree be able, in verse 18 of Ephesians 3, comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, but he goes on to say, which passes knowledge. The love of God in Christ Jesus. The great love of God. Sacrificial love. Self-giving love. Unconditional love. Pure love. Holy love. Life-changing love. The great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins. Even in that desperate plight in which he found us. Has made us alive together with Christ. And he did it by grace. Grace. That attribute of God that just freely pours out favor and blessing and benefit to those who deserve it. Not at all. Utterly and absolutely undeserving. His unmerited favor. By grace you are saved. That's what God did. He did it by his power. We close chapter 1 of Ephesians with a description of God's power. It was that power that raised Christ from the dead and exalted him to the right hand of the Father and subjected all things under his feet. It's that power that makes living dead men alive in him, spiritually alive, alive to God, throbbing with God's life, eternal life, blessed life. Love found a way to accomplish that. Love found a way to redeem my soul. Love found a way to make me whole. Love sent my Lord to the cross of shame. Love found a way. Oh, praise His holy name. That's the way the songwriter put it. Love found a way to make dead men alive in Jesus Christ. And so those who have trusted Christ as Savior from sin and become the recipients of His grace are no longer living dead men. They are dead men now living and now enjoying the very life of God. 
Now they're ready for God to use. This is the material that God's going to use to accomplish his program on earth. But that's not all he did to us. Making us alive was only the beginning. Verse 6 tells us that he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Raised us together to sit in the heavenlies. He removed us from the sphere of this world system to a new heavenly sphere. That is that sphere of being in Christ. We studied that in chapter 1. He's blessed us in verse 3 of chapter 1 with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. We learned that was that sphere we live in, like an astronaut space capsule that provides all the spiritual atmosphere we need to sustain us in, uh, in a hostile environment. That is Satan's ungodly world system. We're here. We live here. But we live in another sphere, the sphere of Jesus Christ. We're in fellowship with him. We're in union with him. That's the heavenlies. We live a heavenly life on earth if we're in communion and fellowship with Jesus Christ. And God did that by His power because He loved us and had mercy upon us and because He's a God of all grace. He raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenlies in Christ. Hold your place in Ephesians and go over to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. Because to the Colossians, Paul has a slightly different way of describing what God did for us. In Colossians 1.13, he says he has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Here we are still living on the earth, Satan's domain. He is the prince of the power of the air. But we've been translated out of his kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. We live in a new sphere, still on the earth, but enshrouded in Jesus Christ. And this is the sphere in which we have all spiritual blessings. This is the sphere in which we've been delivered from the plague of satanic spiritual darkness. We've been delivered. Not only have we been raised to new life, we've been delivered. You remember when Jesus stood before that tomb in Bethany and called Lazarus forth from the grave and he came hobbling out in his grave clothes. Jesus didn't turn around and walk away. Say to himself, now he's alive. You know, struggle for yourself, Lazarus. He said, loose him and let him go. He was alive, now he was to be delivered, freed, to go on and live a productive life. And God not only raised us, gave us new life, but set us free, delivered us from the power of darkness when he translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. So we have a new position above the world. No longer do we need to be occupied and totally consumed with the world and its, uh, and its enjoyments and its pleasures and its praise and because there is no future in an occupation with the world. We, we've now been brought into a new sphere. That's our position. The question is, does our daily practice match our eternal position? Are we living as sons of the kingdom, alive in Christ Jesus, raised together with him to be seated in heavenly places? Are we reflecting that kind of life in our everyday living? I'm afraid there are a lot of believers that are still back there in the first three verses. Well, I think probably they've been saved. They've trusted Christ. They know him as their savior from sin, but they haven't grown beyond that. They're still struggling 
with the standard of the world. It still has its grip upon them. They're still struggling with the philosophy of Satan. They're still letting him fill their minds with, with his way of thinking. And they're still struggling with that flesh, which we'll struggle with till we die. But in many cases, it's dominating them. And the reason it's dominating them is because they're feeding it. They keep exposing themselves to things that strengthen the flesh. The flesh is like a lion. The more you feed it, the stronger it gets. And people who keep feeding it, keep satisfying it illicitly, won't ever have victory over it. They've got to stop feeding it. And they're going to struggle with it until the day God takes them home, until they begin to flee these things, as the Apostle Paul exhorted us to do. It's a beautiful life held out for us, our present position, alive in Christ, raised together to be seated in the heavenlies with him, a picture of peace and tranquility and fellowship and enjoyment. The question is, are we enjoying it? Our past plight, our present position, look at our prospective purpose in verses 7 to 10. That in the ages to come, the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Here's why God saved us. He saved us because he loved us. He saved us because he wanted to deliver us from an eternal hell. But the primary reason he saved us is so that he could use us throughout eternity to demonstrate the riches of his grace, the exceeding riches of his grace. Grace that was exhibited in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. When throughout the ages of eternity, it is made known that vile, despicable, unworthy, undeserving, hell-bound sinners like you and me have been transformed by God's grace and made children of God to inhabit heaven's eternity or, or the eternal heavens, that's going to be an evidence that God is a God of grace. Only grace could do that. And so you and I will be trophies of God's grace that, that magnify and glorify the grace of God throughout the ages to come. But that, that statement of why God saved us leads the Apostle Paul into a summary of all that he's been teaching us thus far in the book of Ephesians. And it's such a beautiful summary that it more or less capsulizes the whole gospel in a nutshell. Probably three of the most important verses in the scripture, if there can be some that are more important than others. Because they summarize what we need to know about salvation and about Christian living. They're verses we refer to so often, I'm almost embarrassed to try to say anything about them that I haven't already said because I quote them sometime or other, almost every Sunday in some context or other. And oftentimes during the week as I'm talking to unbelievers and having opportunities to share Christ with them, I turn to these verses. For by grace, shall we give it a try? Shall we try to say something about them? For by grace are you saved through faith. Remember, these were penned by the Apostle Paul. That fellow who called himself on one occasion the chief of sinners. That man who, though he thought he was pleasing God, hated Jesus Christ. That man who saw believers persecuted 
and injured and killed. He knew the meaning of grace because he was one of those vile sinners that God reached down and touched. One of those undeserving, unworthy, hell-bound sinners that God redeemed by his grace. For by grace, Paul wrote, he knew all about it. Not all about it. Probably no human being does. But he knew a great deal more about it than most of us. For by grace are you saved, delivered from the guilt and penalty and consequences and bondage of sin. For by grace are you saved through faith. There is no other way for God's grace to be activated in human hearts and lives but through faith. All God asks us to do is believe it. Salvation is not by grace plus anything. It's by grace alone, received through human faith. Faith is not a meritorious work. It is simply an attitude of mind that recognizes a need and allows God to do what needs to be done in our lives. That's faith. And there isn't any other way for God's grace to be activated in our lives. Isn't God's grace through faith plus baptism plus the Lord's Supper plus penance plus last rites plus church attendance plus anything else? It's God's grace received through faith. By grace are you saved through faith. And just to be sure we understood it, the Apostle Paul went on to say, and not of works, not of works, or that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It isn't of anything we do, not of any work we can perform, it's the gift of God. And to try to pay God for it, to try to do something to earn it or deserve it is as insulting to God as it would be to try to give someone a gift and have them try to pay you for it. You really want to give it to them. You care for them and you want to show them you care and you try to give it to them and they try to pay you for it. That's an insult and you take it as an insult, don't you? I've told you a story before that I'm going to tell you again. It's not in my notes, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway because it's fresh on my mind because the people uh, with whom this happened are arriving at our house after church tonight to spend three days. We haven't seen them for several years. He was a lieutenant in the Air Force who came to our church in Fort Worth, Texas, my first pastorate. He was stationed uh, in Fort Worth, and they chose our church with which to fellowship. They were about our age, a lieutenant in the Air Force, in the late 50s, didn't make much money. So they didn't have any more than I than we did. And we didn't have much, believe me, in those days. But they cared for us, and they wanted to do something for us. This fellow was a graduate of Michigan State University. And Michigan State was in town to play SMU, that is in Dallas, a town 30 miles from Fort Worth. And they wanted us to go with them to the game. So they bought the tickets. We were on, I don't know, about the 45-yard line, beautiful seats. Maybe you know something about what seats cost at a college football game on the 45-yard line. After the game, they took us to a very exclusive restaurant. I mean, we had never been to a restaurant like this before in our lives. We'd been to restaurants. You know, we'd been to the first McDonald's in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, we'd been to some other. You know, about once a year, we'd get to a place like that. That was about all the money we had in those days. And this was so lavish that we just couldn't believe it. Well, we were, we were still very young and didn't know how to receive gifts very graciously. And, and I guess I shouldn't tell this story now that I'm into it because it's really about my wife. It's not about me. It's not fair to tell stories on her. Either. 
But we sat there through this whole meal, and Mary kept saying, oh, this is awful. You folks shouldn't be doing this. Oh, this is terrible. I just feel so guilty, and you're spending all this money. This went on and on and on. Till finally, the girl turned to Mary and she said, Mary, shut up. <laughs> I mean it. Just as sure as I'm standing here, she said, shut up, will you? We want to do this for you. We love you, and we want to do it for you. Now enjoy it, will you? And from that moment on, we did. We really did. But you see, we were insulting her because we thought we didn't deserve that, so we should try to pay for it. It wasn't right that they should do that for us. And yet, you know, some people, are, that, that's the way they are with God. They want to pay for it. They want to do something to deserve it. Folks, we don't deserve it. We can't ever deserve it. There's nothing we can do to deserve it. Let's just receive it freely from his hand. It's the gift of God. And there's no other way to get a gift but simply receive it in gratitude. That's all. And that's what the word of God says. It is the gift of God, not of works. And the reason it's not of works is because God doesn't want us boasting throughout eternity in anything except the person of Jesus Christ. Anyone but him. We're not going to be boasting in ourselves. For by grace are you saved through faith. And it is not of yourself. See the word that? Some Bible teachers say that it's the faith that it's, that's the gift of God. I don't believe that. I don't think the Greek text warrants it. The word that is neuter and the word faith is feminine. And if, if that agreed with faith, they'd have to be the same. And they're not. God's talking about salvation. The whole matter of salvation. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Four, we are his workmanship. We're not our own, folks. We didn't make ourselves in Christ Jesus. We're not responsible for bringing ourselves into relationship with Christ. He is responsible for it. We are his workmanship. You see that word workmanship? It's a beautiful word in Greek. It's the word poema, from which we get our English word poem. We are God's poem. Think about that for a moment. God can take these sinful, vile, hell-bound sinners with all their black, despicable past, transform them by His grace, weave every lives together into a beautiful new creation. We are His workmanship. It was a word that was sometimes used for the workmanship of a, of a potter making a vessel. With great skill, he would weave his fingers as the potter's wheel turned and fashion a beautiful vessel. We are God's workmanship. The, the clay has nothing to do with what happens. It's just the lump of dirty old clay. There it is. But when it gets put on that wheel and the master artisan begins to work it, it turns into a beautiful vessel. Poem. A poetry in motion is what it is. And that's what God does in our lives. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. But there's another purpose for it. One purpose in this context was that the, in the ages to come, we might demonstrate the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ. There's another reason God saved us, folks. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Those good works have nothing to do with our salvation. 
for they are the fruit of our salvation. That's the reason God saved us. Back in verse 2 of this chapter, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, who now works in the sons of disobedience. Satan was working in us so that our works were patterned according to this world. Now God's at work in us, fashioning us after His image so that our works are good works that give glory to Him. And it's God's desire that the world see those good works. According to Matthew chapter 5, and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. But notice the last phrase, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The particular good works God wants you and me to do were decided even before the earth was ever founded and created. The particular good works God wanted you and me to do were laid out by him, marked out ahead of time. That's what this word ordained before really means. Marked out, laid out ahead of time. God laid out a plan for our lives before we ever saw the light of day. Think of it. These horrible living dead men described in verses 1 to 3, whom God knew would trust him as Savior, be redeemed by his grace, raised to a new position in Christ Jesus. God has a plan for their lives. And by working in them and through them to make them the people he wants them to be, they can carry out his plan and therefore accomplish his purposes on the earth. One of the men in our church stopped me after the morning service to just share some thoughts with me, some things God was doing in his life. And as he talked, he knew I was going to be preaching on Ephesians 2.10 tonight, and he just wanted to tell me how much that verse had meant to him. And even as he talked, he choked up. He couldn't even, he couldn't even finish telling me what he wanted to tell me. He was so emotionally overcome with the fact that God had taken him out of the depths of degradation and sin and transformed him by his grace and he's God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God before ordained, think of it, before the foundation of the earth, God had a plan for his life, and my life, and your life, and every other person's life who knows Jesus Christ as Savior from sin. He's got a plan for our lives. And he's ready and willing to use us if we're willing to submit ourselves to him. And open our hearts to his guidance. And walk according to his word. He's going to use us to fulfill his purposes. Well that's the material he has to work with. It's not much to start with. But he can make something out of it. If we will be as moldable in his hands. As that dirty old lump of clay. We can become his workmanship. Ready to fulfill his purposes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that though we once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, for little other purpose than to fulfill the lusts of our own flesh and of our natural minds, we thank you, Father, for your love and mercy and grace. They reached to the depths of sin and took hold of us. And now you're willing to make of us vessels that are usable. If only we're willing to let you. 
God put a deep willingness in our hearts tonight and an attitude of utter and complete surrender to your will. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thanks for listening to this message by Dr. Richard L. Strauss. Copyright 2020, Spiritual Gold, Inc. All rights reserved. For more on this ministry and for additional resources, be sure to visit spiritualgold.org.